0: Welcome to Voices of Experience, radio show and podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Voices of Experience podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. No promotional fees have been paid to anyone appearing on Voices of Experience. Now, on with
1: the show.
2: Welcome to Voices of Experience on KIXI AM 880 and, of course, on KKNW 1150 AM. My name is Paul Casey, your host, and I'm really glad to be back in the studio. Welcome, gentlemen. Neil Peterson's joining us today. Neil's going to be starting a podcast up pretty soon and also going to be talking about some things today. And um, He's got his... uh, I like his title of his blog that he's been doing for a number of years now, and it's called Meandering Musings. And I think that's a really good title of that. And you will understand why when we talk about what he's going to talk to us about today, a recent trip that he took back to the Midwest. So welcome, Neil.
3: Thank you. Looking forward to it.
2: Voices of History for today. Uh, A lot of things going through my mind about uh, September 11th and not so much what I was doing on that day, but what did 9-11 do to change the country? It was 22 years, I saw a lot of great tributes, but I'm gonna ask both Neil and Eric, both Eric's today, if they have something that they would like to share with us in their impression of how the country changed and uh, then maybe how you have changed personally as well. That's coming up in just a few moments. Steve Rabel. You remember that name? I think 99.9% of the people listening out there know that name. But just a reminder, he was a player for the Seattle Seahawks. Then he became an anchor at Cairo News for many years. And he's been in the broadcast booth doing play-by-play broadcasts for the Seahawks for many years. I had him on the second time in a row for the start of the season this year. And uh, just wanted to ask him what he thinks about uh, broadcasting, his career, And, uh, of course, how he felt the Seahawks were going to do this year. I edited out his projection for the (laughs) game they played on Sunday, though. I did him a favor. He told me he wants to be a bookie after he gets (laughs) off the broadcast booth, so I didn't want to get him off to a bad start when he gets into that career. So I took that off. I think you know he thought the Seahawks were going to win. Um, Let's see. What else? Timeless Classics for today. Uh, This song was from 1971, and here uh, is the hint. And it was a lyric from this song. I thought I had her in the palm of my hand. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anybody think? I know this is a tough one. All right. So we'll uh, ruminate on that. And uh, a new segment we're having consistently all this week too, or excuse me, for the uh, next several months is looking at going into business for yourself. That's certainly something I've been doing for 30 plus years. I've written a book about it. There's something that's emerged even more about going into business for yourself, and it's something called solopreneur. I didn't understand until I started hearing that term. That's what I did. I didn't know that's what it was, but simply, that's what I feel that I did and am still doing. So that's what we'll talk about today. So anyhow, let's get going with that. Uh, Back with, uh, let's see, we'll start with... um, the uh, Voices of History in just a few moments. You're listening to Voices of Experience. So, Voices of History. Okay, let's start by this one. This is a couple weeks ago, but it happened in 1969. It was September 2nd. 1969, America's first ATM machine dispenses cash to customers at Chemical Bank in Rockville Center, New York. Wow. Now, I thought it was the (laughs) 1980s. Yeah. But September 2nd, 1969, America's first ATM machine.
1: No comment? Well, I, I distinctly remember the very first time I took money out of my bank, and it was in the early 80s. And back then, you could take out five bucks. Is that right? Yeah, five dollar bill. It probably cost me three more dollars to do it. but I did it
2: anyway. This is pretty yes, cool. Yes, finance wasn't one of your strengths. No, we know that, Eric. That's why
3: but I'm in radio. <laughs> well, one of my, I remember my reaction vividly because I used to be a teller. Oh, and that's this right. was a huge threat to my profession. Okay. Yeah.
2: Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. See again the careers you've had, and I say careers <laughs> and not lightly. September tenth, eighteen ninety seven a 25-year-old London taxi driver becomes the first person ever arrested for a DWI. He was fined 25 shillings. No reaction? Okay, I guess what can you say? I just thought it was interesting. I've taken some cabs in foreign
1: countries where I thought maybe they were drunk. but Right. (laughs) Very
2: true. September 13th, 2004, 19 years ago, my math's getting better, uh, Oprah gives away nearly 300 brand-new Pontiac G sedans worth 28500 for each to everyone in the studio audience, a total of 276 cars in all. One media rep said, I think very accurately, this was probably the greatest promotional stunt in the history of television. You yeah. Remember that? I do remember. We
1: that. still, yeah, remember that uh, clip. You get a car, and you get yeah. a car, and you get a car. <laughs> that must have felt great for Oprah to be,
0: like, uh-huh. to be Santa Claus that day.
2: You know. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I, I tend to agree that that's probably. I can't think of one bigger than that that someone pulled off. We're still talking about it, right? Absolutely. I'm Absolutely. bringing it up. So, um, now changing, shifting a little bit to uh, more somber, somber moment in our history, and that is 9-11. We just went through a 20-second marking of that just a couple of days ago, but just a reminder that, you know, two, you know, airplanes hit the uh, World Trade Center. American Airlines Boeing 767 crashed into the North Tower and initially appeared to be a freak accident. 17 minutes later, a United Airlines Boeing 767 smashed into the South Tower. Then American's American Airlines Flight 77 circled over downtown Washington, D.C., and crashed into the west side of the Pentagon building at 9.37 a.m. Now, my question to us assembled here today, not to retract what we were doing when that happened, but I'd just like to spend a few moments in talking about how do we think the country changed at that moment, and uh, how did it change you personally? Maybe it didn't, but I'm just throwing that out. Did Anybody want to start out?
1: I'll be happy to. I, I, It definitely changed me, as did COVID. I think it was like a one-two punch in my life where you really start to examine what's important in your life and um, kind of softening those sharp edges of, of who you are. And um, so for me, that's what it did. And, it, and in the workplace here, we saw a lot of changes due to both. You know, um, uh, I think a lot of employers had to, I don't want to say ease up, but just sort of realize that. There are things that are important in people's lives beyond the doors and windows of the office, let's say.
2: I'm really glad the way you tied in COVID to that, too, because I think there are a lot of similarities. And I kind of went and cheated and looked at uh, Google. And when I looked at the other country, security, home life, focus on family, things like that came up. How about you, Neil?
3: you have any? Well, two things. One is um, the idea that something could happen on U.S. soil. So the from then on, mm. I think... At least in my case, I'm much more alert to the concept of danger, both here and abroad, never before even thinking about it. So that was a biggie, and that's never gone away. And then the other one that's just so striking to me, I'll never forget the image of, um, brings tears to my eyes as I'm saying this, of President Bush going to the site and how it brought the country together. Mm-hmm. And, boy, do we miss that.
2: Yeah, I was not a big fan of George Bush. I make no uh, hesitation on making that observation. However, at that moment, he did rise to the occasion. And i got to give him a lot of credit that with that. And going to Yankee Stadium and throwing that first ball out, you know, that was really we needed that. And I think that was his finest moment. But I agree with you.
1: Hmm. Yeah, of course, security is always an issue. I took the ferry boat from Fauntleroy over to Southworth yesterday and totally forgotten about this, that uh, because it was the date itself, here comes the Coast Guard chasing the boat with the gunships, you know, the little... Oh, is that right? That happened? Oh, my God. And I hadn't seen that for a while, but to your point, it it was a reminder that these things can still happen Mm because they've happened Mm -hmm. already.
2: And of course, uh, there was a huge anti-Muslim movement that came to fruition during that time, and it's still around. It softened, I think, some, but certainly that was uh, a result of 9-11, and it it continues today. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, something that uh, I don't think we'll take for granted. You just came back from a trip. We're going to talk about that today. Air travel certainly wasn't the same, uh, and it's been really tightened up, and We're just much more aware of our security. So anything else before we move on from that uh, big,
3: Well, the one other thing that really strikes me as I think back on it um, is how it brought out um, the humanity of of everybody, Uh, you know, the firefighters and then the people that lost their lives in the two buildings. And then the way, I mean, it just extended, and the 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 people that were on the flight in Pennsylvania, and then and then the people in Gander, Newfoundland, and the way they responded to all the planes coming in there that had to land. I mean, just very go,
2: good observation. Just, That's a yes,
3: and you just go down one by one, and it's just uh, amazing the humanity that came out as a result of that. Excellent points. Excellent points. Thanks you, for that. Do you
1: yeah. think, though, collectively that it's continued? that humanity amongst all of us, or has it just sort of gotten forgotten?
3: Well, I think uh, that's the point I was trying to make earlier about the incident brought us together as a company, as a country, Mm -hmm. and clearly we're not there today. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's tragic in so many ways that a bad incident brought us together. And today we're fractured in many, many ways. Mm.
2: I wonder, I guess we can't go too much into detail on this, but maybe another time is we talk about the coming together, but Maybe some of what happened then fractured us as well, underlining what occurred, and then they just hardened later. You see what I'm trying to drive at there. I don't know the answer to that. I just throw that out. But um, anyhow, well, thank you, thank you very much for that. We, uh, you know, again, it's a day that we'll obviously never forget, and for good reason. So we'll come up uh, in just a few moments with uh, Steve Rabel, a uh, former Seattle Seahawk player and Seahawk broadcaster. Now, we'll be right back. Steve Rabel, former Seattle Seahawk player, as I talked about in the start of the show, he played the first season with the Seattle Seahawks. He played for six years. And then he talks about this in the interview. I think it's fascinating. I did not know this, but he was going to play for a seventh year. He wasn't cut, but he got his chance to go into broadcasting and he grabbed it. He and his wife said, good move. Why don't you do that, Steve? And um, as most of you know, again, he was the uh, anchor for Cairo news for many years and the play-by-play broadcaster, obviously, with the Seahawks right now. And he's been with the Seahawks organization for over 47 years. So I asked Steve what he thought about a second career, and he's an example that that career came to him because he never wanted to go into broadcasting per se, but then reporters came in and talked to him and he was kind of the go-to guy with summarizing the games. So we started getting used to that. Then, well, he'll talk about it. Let's get into uh, that. Let's pick up with that when he starts talking about how he got into his career as a broadcaster.
0: Eventually, you know, reporters and stuff would come to me because I, I could at least put into words what a lot of us were feeling. And that, along with then getting some opportunities in on radio uh, to do some commercial work, uh, to do a lot of speaking in the public, uh, and and kind of hone some skills. By the time I was uh, in my third year, 1978 uh, and 79 especially, I started doing, uh, literally working on weekends with Cairo Radio and some others. I was doing telethons and just about everything you could do to, to get that practice. Uh, in 1982, right before training camp, I was all set to go to camp for my seventh season i we get a call from pete gross he actually called sharon because i was out of town and said hey you know we have these opportunities at cairo tv and radio if steve is interested for tv magazine show five nights a week filling in for wayne cody on tv sports doing the radio broadcast as the analyst but he's going to have to quit playing football and so that was a discussion that sharon and i had in it really wasn't that long a discussion. And it turned out to be, you know, a really good move because, you know, to come out of football and not know what you're going to do, kind of a scary thing. To decide to retire on your own and to walk into a what turned out to be a, a pretty good career uh, was just exactly what we had hoped for.
2: It seems to me that Pete Gross had a big effect on you.
0: Oh, absolutely. First of all, he he he's just a great guy. And if you talk to any player... Uh, along the way, uh, and I'll give you a great example, is uh, Jacob Green. When you talk to guys who are friends of Pete and who knew Pete and and know how compassionate he is and how honest he is, Kenny Easley uh, was another one who always used to say, you know, Pete Gross would walk up to me with a microphone in hand and a tape recorder in the other hand, and the first thing he would say is not, he wouldn't ask a question. He'd say, Kenny, would you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? And Ken always appreciated that just he's a kind of a formal guy kenny uh, easily was and um he he always appreciated that so he yes was was honest and and could not have been more helpful in my career in steering me in this direction and helping me understand what it takes to be you know it's different to be a radio broadcaster in some ways than a television play-by-play guy or even analyst you know with radio you really have to describe and paint the picture because on TV they're already looking at the pictures. so now you're just kind of adding around the edges. But with radio, it's all on you, and so I learned I learned all of that from Pete.
2: Reliving the Beast Quake, I saw in a video that you said that that was the best play you've ever seen. Does that still stand? Yeah, I've seen some great I've seen some great plays, and
0: in fact, Marshawn had another play I think a season later in Arizona, which. Well, almost equaled Beastquake in the kind of run it was. The number of people he ran over—I uh, think it was a little longer. In fact, I think it was uh, closer to closer to 80 yards. But uh, he he had an, another marvelous run. And I think at the end of that run, as as I was losing my mind, as I often do uh, in the calls of of a game, I said something about that made Beastquake look like a walk in the park. It didn't, obviously. But at that moment, and pretty much to this day. And I've seen some really good plays. You know, I I saw Gail Sayers run back a couple of kickoffs in an absolute mud puddle and make everybody just look crazy bad. Uh, and and I've seen a lot of that stuff. But this was for sheer effort and determination. And and then, Paul, for all the other guys that were there to help. I mean, we inducted uh, Matt Hasselbeck into the Ring of Honor last year. And so down on the field uh, at halftime, I was the MC of the proceedings, and one of the comments I made was watching Matthew uh, run downfield and try to get a block in for for Marshawn on that run, and selfless, totally selfless. Everybody tried to make uh, make something happen on that play, not just Marshawn. So it, it was the total team effort in that respect. And uh, to this day, yeah, it, it's the best football play I've
2: seen. Bob Blackburn, the voice of the Sonics for many years, and I'm sure you met him on many occasions. Oh, yeah. I asked him once about a moment he had in the broadcast booth that was just totally unexpected, and he told me the experience was that someone in a game on the road unplugged his microphone or the line that came in, and all of a sudden he's on dead air for about 15 minutes and his phone's ringing or whatever have you had anything like that occur while you've been broadcasting but i remember years ago we were doing a game
0: in denver at mile high stadium it was a preseason game so it was about a it would have been about a six o'clock start in denver and uh what five o'clock then i guess here in seattle uh and it was we were calling it on the radio And I just remember we got to the stadium as we always do. And and the press box was way up high. And I looked off in the distance and I saw these black clouds rolling down the, you know, the mountains, the front slope there, uh, the front range of uh, outside of Denver. And it was just as ominous as I could ever remember. And so these black clouds start to surround us and the stadium and, People who had been already out in the stands were kind of heading under the concourses for cover because we knew we were going to get some rain. Well, as it turned out, these clouds were bringing some big-time tornadoes, and the tornadoes were touching down in the outskirts of Denver. And at that time, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, when I would have normally been anchoring the news at Cairo TV, but I was getting ready to do this preseason football game, our newscast was showing live pictures from Denver of these funnel clouds moving into these neighborhoods outside of Denver. So while we were doing some things, we had some other things to go on in in our pregame show that I was off the air. I picked up a phone and called Cairo TV and was doing a play-by-play from sitting up high at Mile High Stadium watching this Ter- terrible weather come over denver so it had really nothing to do with a football game i was doing a weathercast uh, very much like the weather channel would do today but this was probably 15 no more than that 20 years ago or more 25 years ago and it it, it to me it struck me kind of funny and uh, happily there weren't any injuries but there was a lot of damage done and eventually we got that game played But that was one of those moments that was, wow, you know, I didn't expect this, but okay, we roll with the
2: punches. You certainly did, actually. I think that's a little bit more frightening than what Bob Blackburn went through. Uh, That's more (laughs) of a harrowing story. Jeez. Yeah, Yeah, and that just shows you got so much balance in your career. You know, you're able to do that. That's that's fascinating. I was going to ask you a question about a trajectory of someone wanting to go into broadcasting, but I'm going to answer that for you. I think that the fact that you are an expert in, you know, football, all the stuff that you do, the emceeing, you got to know so many subjects so well that you said a peak Rose can help you out and train you maybe some fine pointers of doing the broadcast, but the fact that you were able to bring so much knowledge to the table. And I think really obviously has made your career shine in that way.
0: Well, um, thank you. Um, and, and, It's one of the things that I tell young people, I I do
2: some, I
0: still do a fair amount of speaking, although not as much as I used to now that I'm retired from the TV side of things. But when I'm asked, and I was just doing a, they have a sportscasters camp at the University of Washington. So young people from all around the region will come and spend like four or five days there intensely working on everything from how to call a game to to uh, how you know how to prepare for a broadcast and all those things, so they bring various speakers in, Dave Sims from the from uh, the uh, from the Mariners and and myself and and a number of us will come in and and uh, and chat. One of the things I told all those young people, some of whom were still in high school and others were just starting college, I said, you know, yes, like Washington State, terrific broadcast. Uh, journalism school. I highly recommend it. But I also said every other opportunity you have, every um, alternative class, every elective class that you can take, take it. Because the broader your education, the more information you'll have, the 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 more subjects on which you can speak. And for me, that really helped. At, at Georgia Tech, I took everything from Shakespeare to to uh, creative writing, to ceramic engineering, even though I was majoring in business management. Uh, And all of those things gave me a a sense of understanding more about the world and that we lived in. And then once I got into the news business, uh, you know, it's one thing to be in sports, but to be in news, you better have that, that background. So to this day, I, you know, I still get both the Seattle times and the New York times. I read all that stuff. I'm a news junkie still am. And um, it it just is helpful to be, to have a a broad reach. And when you're doing breaking news, whether it's a tornado in Denver or an earthquake in Seattle or nine 11, um, you have facts, you have information, you have something you can base, your observations on, and, you know, you you better be right. Uh, That's one of the things that people expect us in this business to be, and that's factually correct and true and honest. And if you can be all those things, uh, then that's great, and I think it helps having that kind of broad background.
2: Well, it certainly comes across, I'll tell you that, Steve, in in your experience there. Um, I know your time is limited. Two more questions, if that's okay? And one would yep. be the, well, the demise of the Pac-12. You mentioned Washington State. Now it's the Pac-2. I'm not going to yep. go into details about the consolidation and, and all that. Me as a Cougar, uh, kind of devastated, to be honest. But nonetheless, that's not my question. question would be the consolidation of not only, you know, what's happening around the league and the country. How do you think that's going to affect pro football?
0: That's interesting. I, I don't know necessarily that it will because... The schools, you know, you'd be amazed at the reach that the NFL teams have into the smallest schools out there. Nobody is under the radar anymore. When I came up uh, in 1976, perhaps uh, some of the smaller schools might not have gotten the, the, the uh, time and attention. But now if there is any athlete out there, uh, almost every team will have some scout somewhere that knows about this guy at some small school. So just because you're not associated with perhaps the Pac-12 anymore or there is no Pac-12, you're still going to get that attention from, from professional football. I think some of the other ways that it might affect it, we're already seeing it in the uh, name image likeness, NIL. That That will become even more an issue, I think, in college football, and that is players in college who are already making a million dollars as um, oh sorry about that
1: my
2: it's dog. okay my dog's in the other room I put her that's just fine
0: <laughs> yeah Bruno stop uh,
2: Bruno come on Bruno
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, it is uh, I think that's that's a real issue Nil because guys are not now already making the million dollars in college so you know obviously they're gonna stand to make a lot more in pro football but will guys be able to make more demands will the draft continue to be what it is or will it be now the teams with the most money are going to be the ones that uh, are able to get the the best players and and that's already happening in college so you're going to see that kind of consolidation with the alabamas and the georgias and which is one of the reasons why USC and UCLA came over to the Big 10 the michigans and all of the world who have that kind of pull are going to be able to pay more and more for players. So what's that going to do to the, you know, the already somewhat skewed uh, financials in the national football league. We just saw uh, quarterback uh, Burroughs from Cincinnati sign a new deal last night, uh, $225 million contract, $55 million a year um, and 219 guaranteed. I mean, that's just, that's just out of, out of the realm of most people's comprehension. And yet that's what's, going on in the marketplace right now. So it'll be interesting to see some of those kinds of effects of college football consolidation.
2: Well, I can say Bruno does not think it's a good thing (laughs) if you just ask my opinion. All right. Yeah. All right, final question, and that is, and I want you to make a prediction, how do you think their season is going to go this year?
0: Well, I'm terrible with predictions, so take it with a grain of salt. The Seahawks have such great veteran leadership in, in Geno, and Bobby Wagner is back, and, and those sorts of things. Our receiving core is, is uh, maybe second to none in the NFL this year. I really have high hopes uh, for this season for the Seahawks. They're Again, they're young, but they're really talented. And as even you know, my wife says, because she's been with me through the last forty five of the forty seven years I've been with the Seahawks, and she knows, we can make all kinds of predictions. One injury can turn the season on its ear. The Rams saw that last year with Cooper Cup getting hurt. They went
2: five and twelve. Well, you certainly called it right last year because I wasn't optimistic. I thought, like everybody else, a three win or four win season, you said no. They're going to be good, and they're going to be competitive, and I've actually played that a few times later in the season because you were right on target, so thank you for that. I know you got to run, and I appreciate your time, Steve. All my pleasure. Thank you. Well, welcome back to Voices of Experience. We weren't gone that long, but I uh, thought it was very interesting what Steve Rabel had to say about a number of things, but I want to call it one thing uh, about the game on Sunday, which is interesting uh, when you look at the game. It was a game of two halves. Mm-hmm. If you had to go somewhere at halftime, you would have thought that the Seahawks had the game locked, not locked up, it was a close game, but it was going to be a very competitive game. I actually didn't watch much of the second half at all. So the Seahawks were up 13-7, to good game going on. Then the next half comes and they were shut out 23 nothing. So L.A., Rams go home with a big, big win. The only thing I will submit is that there's more good that than bad because one thing is that if they had lost 45 nothing, 46 nothing, played in miserable halves all the way through, then you have a real problem. But they show they can play. You see where I'm going with this? They play the first half again. They can solve this. A young team, and also I have a lot of faith in Pete Carroll yes. that he's been in this position before. If anybody... Can get in their head and turn this around. It's him, gentlemen. What do you guys think? No I, opinion. I, I from agree Nia. with
1: you uh, on the game itself. I I kind of thought it was in there, not in hand, but 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 good enough. And I actually left and did not see the second half, and then get surprised by the score listening to the radio on the way back. So I was right there with you. I liked what uh, Steve said about you know the history of of teams and seasons, and this is a full season, seventeen games. Um, so anything can happen. It's a little hard to judge a week one with a young team like this.
2: Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, he said something else I thought was interesting, that a game can change on the dime with an injury. We'll look at Aaron Rodgers yeah. in the New York Jets. Guy, what, played five minutes, and his season's over. His career could be over, but there it goes. You know, you can't you can't project these things right there. And, three, I certainly agree with him that I think the tragedy of college football – the nil thing, that kind of set this whole thing in motion that players making millions of dollars in college football, I don't think the debate whether they should get pocket change or have been paid something for their services was out of the realm of question. But I think the NCAA lost control of this, and this is where we're at right now. And uh, they're, if anybody says this is an amateur game anymore, you know, it's not. It's, yeah. That... that ship has sailed a very long time ago. So anyhow, my thanks to uh, Steve Rabel for his comments. There anything else?
1: Well, it's just a great interview. And I like what he said about getting into broadcasting, things like that. I know Eric and, and I have had different pathways into broadcasting. And, of course, this is radio. There's television. There's other things. What I find really interesting right now is all the technology that's out there, young people looking at podcasts. Um, people using Twitter and YouTube to express themselves on all kinds of things, from music to comment to... So I think it's, it's it's very interesting time in media, and I think there's certainly a place for youthful thinking in media, not just necessarily age, but just people that get it, get how people access it. And, it, and if you have a passion, go for it. It's pretty inexpensive to get involved in it nowadays. Yeah,
2: and I also think that he talked about you know being well-rounded. If you're going to be a sports announcer, it really helps to have a really broad education. Yeah. I, I agree with that totally.
1: Unless you're Dennis Miller. Remember him doing M, uh, Monday Night Football for that season? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. right. Totally <laughs> forgot and about it, that. Everything he was saying was going over everybody's heads because he just goes he goes down a rabbit hole kind of a thing.
2: Yeah, he's a little strange anyhow. <laughs> yeah. he, but anyhow, no, I'd forgotten that. But he, he did last one season, right? Yeah, Is that it? Uh, I think it was just one season. Enough. Okay. <laughs> that's in the other extreme. All right, so we're going to be back with Neil's Shock and Awe. You'll have to come back to hear what that is. You're going to ask meandering musing. Neil Peterson, how did you come up with that?
3: Well, I, I, I have a good friend who 20 years ago was really suffering from cancer, and it didn't look like it was going to be too much longer before he passed. And he's, the good news is he fought it and beat it. But I can remember sitting down with him at that time when it looked really bleak and asking him, you know, what, what was really important at this moment? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Neil, it's the little things. It's putting my hands around a warm cup of coffee in the morning. It's opening the tactile feel of a newspaper. And so ever since then, I've just tried to focus on the power, what I call the power of moments. Little moments in a day that just are so potentially so meaningful.
2: So you've been doing your blog for about 10 years now. And you've done over 300, and I've read a lot of them. I can't say I've read all of them because I got into them maybe five years ago, but I've been kind of hooked on them because I think what you just expressed there, that's exactly what you do in your blog, and now you're going to be doing a podcast, which is really exciting um, coming up this fall. But uh, let's just get right to an example of one of your uh, meanderings, musings. And that is uh, your latest one, Shock and Awe. And it was about a trip you took back to the Midwest. And that's not the point of why you wrote this. It's something that happened at the airport. Could you describe for us what that was?
3: I'd be glad to. (laughs) Uh, This was just uh, Labor Day weekend. And I got to the airport for about four o'clock in the morning for an early 6 a.m. flight to Chicago. And hustled to get to my gate, got there just with 15 minutes to spare, and all the seats surrounding the gate were filled with other passengers as I looked around to find a place to sit. So I was standing up there in the aisle and my carry-on and my briefcase and feeling fine, no problem, just waiting for the announcement to be able to board. And as I'm looking around, I saw this gentleman sitting in one of the seats and he had a, two teenage daughters next to him and he had his wife. There were four of them. And this guy was, I'd say, in his late 50s, balding glasses, lanky, six feet plus. Um, and he's motioning to me to come over and take his seat. He's not saying anything verbally because he's so far away, but he's asking me, do I want his seat? And it just shocked the hell out of me. I mean, I'm saying to myself, you know, do I look infirm? Do I look like I'm 100 years old? Do I look like I'm frail? You know, am I, am I uh, wearing, you know, um, am I, do I have canes? I mean, what, what's what's going on here? You're walker. Why yeah, would somebody ask if I could sit down? And it just shocked the heck out of me. <laughs> so that was the shock piece of the story. And then the awe piece of the story is, as uh, as I got over that, slowly, <laughs> and I'm sitting down in my seat in the plane, you know, at the same time, I began to realize, wow, what a gesture of kindness. I mean, the gratitude that I had that somebody, I, a total stranger, would make the effort to allow somebody he doesn't know to come sit in his seat by itself is unbelievable, but the fact that he also was responsible for a family, two kids and a wife. And he's asking me to take his seat. And that was the awe piece of this. I mean, I was just in awe uh, that somebody would do that in this day and age. So that was the reason I entitled it Shock and Awe.
2: Great title and a great story. I mean, again, that's just a sample of the observations that you make in your blog. And just to let people know, His podcast, again, is coming in the fall. But if you want to visit his uh, website now, you can go to dot com. .com. You can see all of them, all 300-plus that uh, he's been doing over the years. And there's always some kind of tale you have, like you just described. You could have left it at the first, I was shocked by this, and left it there. But then it kind of some thoughtfulness that goes on. So I think that's why it's powerful and it will be a powerful podcast coming up. So next week uh, we already did this uh, one and that's a little bit different trip that you had, not a different trip to France, but a different view of Paris spending time there and um, how the waiters are waiting on people there and everything. So I thought that was quite good. So that'll be come back next week. So, NielsTrips.com, and again, we're looking November first, roughly, to have that uh, started up. And we'll talk about it every week leading up to that. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. a little bumper music in between segments there. And uh, want to talk today about self-employment. And we've talked about this on the show quite a bit, but I would like to dig a little deeper and talk about being a solopreneur and what that means. Let's first decide, well, actually not decide, let's hear what the definition of a solopreneur is. And that's one who organizes, manages, assumes the risk of a business enterprise with the help, without the help of a partner. I mean, solopreneur, you're doing it. And I think I mentioned earlier, if I didn't, uh, I've run my business in that way. I only heard this term maybe within the last decade, but that's what I did. And that's what I'm continuing to do, being a solopreneur. Now I'm not saying I haven't had a lot of help. I've had a lot of contract workers, but when it comes down to it, I didn't expand my business when I had opportunities. I wanted to keep it small, and keep it the way, but be successful. And I think I was able to achieve that, okay? Not for everybody. It's not, you know, the way everyone should do it. You know, Jeff Bezos did it differently, and he did all right, okay? So, but I'm, what I'm submitting is that if you follow some of the things that I did and some of my mentors, and Neil, you knew him very well, Larry Kaufman. He was the one who really... um was, I'd say, my mentor to a lot of this stuff, is what you can accomplish by yourself. And sometimes I thought he was a little crazy. But uh, overall, I think he had a really strong philosophy there. So what I want to do is, you know, talk about that just a few points today. That's all we have time for. But we're starting something now that if you would like to get a free copy of my book, Is Self-Employment for You?, the point of the book is not to talk you into going to business for yourself or out of it. My goal is when you're through with the book, you're through with it and going, oh, I want to do this. I can do this. Or you say, no, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. That's where the goal of the book is. I'm not trying to sell anything. And I, frankly, have heard people tell me on both sides of it. And I'm satisfied. when I want to hear that. You know what? This isn't for me. I don't want to do it. Great. All right? It's not a, it's not for everybody, and nothing is for everybody. You know, Doing a blog isn't for everybody. But if you are thinking about doing it, that's what I'm hoping that you uh, are through the book. So one of the things I talk about is being a solopreneur, and I suggest strongly if this is the direction you want to take, one of the things I read all the time because it says without a partner that some people think they need a partner to go into business. And I asked them immediately when you do that, essentially you just have given half your business away, 50% to someone else. You have a partner, right? <laughs> so the margins of being, uh, g- gaining a profit are very difficult in the beginning and it takes a while to build that up. So I question, do you need a partner? Well, some people will say I'm good in sales, but the other person is really good in finances. So we've got a good partnership going here. I submit if you're good in sales, you're gold. It's not that you love to sell. Will you do it? Yeah, You have to sell, and that's all there is to it. And if you're that person, you can always hire a bookkeeper. So don't think about because someone is there to just be a bookkeeper, pay by the hour, but go forth and try to uh, you know, get this business underway, no matter where it is or what you want to do. And uh, the other thing I advise, keep family and friends away from your business. (laughs) Not a good thing. Overall, I don't hear great stories. You hear the Nordstrom family. There's some that have made it work. But I submit that um, family and friends are for Christmas and uh, vacations, not really for running a business. And you get too many things involved there. You should hire professionals and people who are going to boost you and get you to the next level. I've just seen a lot of uh, situations where that isn't the case. So anyhow, those are some things I talk about today. And I'm talking about, again, you don't need partners. That's one of the things that I suggest you really examine or give it a lot of thought before you do that. And um, so again, if you would like to get a copy of the book, it's called Is Self-Employment for You? And it is free. The first one to call, 425 Six five three. What have I got? Uh the number again, four two five six five three. Oh good gosh. I just said
1: up. I usually have it on my sheet of paper. And to the, of course, this week is the week I don't have it. Right.
2: So we'll get that to you in a moment. Um but it's eleven sixty six. Four two five, six, five three, 1166. 1166 That's it. There you go. Yes. Uh, write that down next time, Paul. That's what you should do in business too. Write things down. <laughs> <Right. You know>. <laughs> but <laughs> Anyhow, there. that's the uh, phone number. But again, the first one to call will get a free copy of the book. Just leave your address, zip code, your name, and I will get you a copy of the book. We will not release any names or give your information out whatsoever. Again, that's 425 653 Sixty
1: six. And the last person that did that did a great job, left the phone number, left the address, spoke clear and concise. It makes life easier. It really does.
2: For my confusion. Four two five six five three eleven
1: sixty-six. Real quick, Paul, what's your opinion on people who have a reluctancy to be a solopreneur if they're going into business? Do you think it, a lot of it's fear or the spotlight's all on me? And if I'm if I fail, I'm gonna I'm gonna feel the heat? I'm not sure that people really think
2: about what a solopreneur is. Gotcha. Uh, So going in, um, I think they feel like they need someone. They got to have someone to converse with. And we all have that. There's things about being a solopreneur that, you know, I read about saying the downside is isolating. It can be isolating. That's why you join the rotary. You get out and Mm. meet people. You, you know, sitting in your room eight hours a day on the computer that, is isolating, and I'm not suggesting that. If you do it this way, get out there and and join service clubs, organizations, maybe related to your business, but certainly circulate. That that's what I would suggest. So, where are we at now? We are coming in close to the close here. How much time do we have, Eric? About,
1: we've got about three minutes before okay. we move on three to the timeless classic.
2: All right. So three minutes to the Timeless Classic. I did want to
1: say something really quick because I really appreciate this when this happens. I was just, I just happened to be speaking to another host here on the radio station, Christine. And we've become good friends over the years. She does a wonderful show and she's just a fantastic person. But we're talking and uh, she said, what are you doing later today? I said, I'm going to be on the show Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. And she's like, you are? And I said, yeah. She goes, my mom loves that show. She listens to it all the time. Her name's Rosalinda. Thank you, Rosalinda, for listening. We get comments from time to time, and I love that. When listeners say they love the show, or anybody, if they say, you know what, I wish you did more of this or that. It's right. Great no, that's great to
2: hear. That is great to hear. Rosalinda, thank you very much for that. And uh, you get a free copy of the book, anyhow. If you, there don't you want go. it. So, anyhow. Get a signature on there, even. But thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so we got a just a few minutes to go. How about some fun facts that we go out with this? Okay? Yeah, let's do it. Did you know this? More people live in New York City than in 40 out of the 50 states in this country. Wow. <laughs> really? Okay. The word Pennsylvania is misspelled on the Liberty Bell. See, I forget phone numbers, oh. I don't misspell Liberty Bell or whatever it is.
1: Do you think they got the bell all done and then they they did the engraving and said, "Ah, no one will notice." Yeah,
2: that's probably it, more or less. I'll go, go just get it up there. It up. Let's see. Um, <laughs> excuse me. It would take more than four hundred years to spend a night in all of the Las Vegas hotel rooms. Now, who figured that out? I could make wow. that up. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I could say it could take eight hundred years. But <laughs> I wonder. I, that's one of those things you. never prove one way or the other right but sounded good sounded really good um let me see there was enough concrete in the hoover dam to build a two-lane highway from san francisco to new york city
1: i've heard that with or without the potholes i don't know
2: (laughs) call the mayor about that saw him at rotary today or mayor uh let's see the empire state building has its own zip code all right so we out of just uh I'm here, Eric, rolling on, because the uh, Timeless Classic is a little bit longer. So tell me when I have to wrap. It's like I got now what? Three.
0: <laughs> We've got two, about a minute.
2: A minute to go. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. My name is Paul Case, and I certainly enjoyed having everybody in the studio today. Uh, next week, as I mentioned, I went to a Rotary today, saw Mayor Harrell speak, I'm trying to think about uh, more of the future of Seattle. How's it going? Report card, I think we're making progress. I think things are getting better. Stu Elway in his latest poll, he talks about the homelessness, crime, affordable housing, policing. That's really on the minds of Seattle. We're going to talk to Neil about meandering musings, his trip to Paris. And a uh, solopreneur for next week, the fourth truth about experience. Since it shows about experience, that's what we're going to talk about. Quote of the week, the two most important days of your life are the day that you are born and the day you figure out why. Bet you didn't think it was going to end that way. Mark Twain.